welcome to My Favorite Theorem, a podcast about math. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, Evelyn Lamb. I am a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. How are you doing, Evelyn? Happy New Year. Thanks. I'm, our listeners listening sometime in the summer will really appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so things are good here. I promised myself I wouldn't talk about the weather, so okay. um, instead... Uh, in the obligatory uh, weird banter section, um, I will say that I just finished a sewing project, only slightly late as a holiday gift for my spouse. Um, mm -hmm. So that was fun. I made some napkins. So most sewing projects are non-Euclidean geometry because mm -hmm. bodies are not Euclidean. Sure. But um, sure. this one it was actually Euclidean geometry, which is a little easier. Yeah, right. Well, I'm freezing. I've, you know, <laughs> no one ever believes this about about Florida, but I've never been so cold in my life as I have been in Florida, with my seventy yeah, year old well, seventy year old poorly insulated home. You know, the highs are only in the forties. Right. It's miserable. So, yeah. but the, but it'll, but the, but the beauty of Florida, of course, is that it ends next week. It'll be seventy five, and you know, <laughs> I'm excited about this show. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Yes, yes. So we should at this point introduce our guest um, today. We're very happy to have uh, Ken Ribbit on the show. So Ken, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I can tell you about myself professionally first. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley, and I've been on the Berkeley campus uh, since 1978. So we're coming up on 40 years, although I've spent a lot of time in France and uh, elsewhere in Europe and uh, around the country. Uh, I am currently president of the American Mathematical Society, um, which is how a lot of people um, know me. Um, the husband of a mathematician, my wife is Lisa Goldberg. She does um, statistics and economics and mathematics, and she's currently interested in particular in the statistics of sport. Um, we have two daughters who are in their early 20s, and uh, they were home for the holidays. Oh, good. So my, my son started college this year, and this was yeah. his first time home. And it was um, my, my wife and I were super excited for him to come home. It's just, you know, you don't realize how much you're going to miss him when they're gone. Exactly. Hi, Mom. <laughs> I, I didn't go home this year for, for the holidays. I, I went home for Thanksgiving, but not for uh, Christmas or New Year's. So, oh, well. Um, well, she missed you. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> So, Ken, yeah. uh, I, I, I think uh, you, you gave us a list of something like five theorems that you were maybe going to call your favorite, which it's true. It's like picking a favorite child. But, but what did you settle on? What's your favorite theorem? Well, maybe I should say first that um, talking about one's favorite theorem really is like talking about one's favorite child. And um, some years ago, I was interviewed for an undergraduate project by a, a Berkeley student who asked me to choose my favorite prime number. And I said, well, you really can't do that um, because um, we love all our prime numbers, just like we love all our children. But then I ended up um, reciting a couple of them um, offhand, and uh, they made their way into the um, publication that she prepared. So one of them is the six-digit prime number 144169, mm. which I encountered early in my research. That's a good one. Another is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, mm. which uh, was discovered in uh, the 1980s by a senior mathematician who is being shown a uh, factorization program. And he just typed some 10 digit number 
into the program to see how it would factor, and it turned out to be prime. Wow. It's kind of completely amazing. <laughs> so this was a good anecdote, and that kind of reminded me of um, prime numbers. And um, I think that what I should cite as my favorite theorem today for the purposes of this encounter is a theorem about prime numbers. The prime numbers are the ones that uh, can't be factored. Um, numbers bigger than one. So, for example, six is not a prime number because it can be factored as two times three, but two and three are prime numbers because they can't be factored any further. And one of the oldest theorems in mathematics is the theorem that there are infinitely many prime numbers. Mm. Um, the set of primes keeps going on to infinity. And uh, I told one of my daughters yesterday that uh, I would discuss this as a theorem, and she was very surprised that it, it, it's not, so to speak, obvious. And, and, you know, she said, well, why wouldn't there be infinitely many prime numbers? But mm -hmm. in fact, you could imagine an alternative reality in which the largest prime number had, you know, say 50,000 digits, and then beyond that, there was nothing. So it, it is a statement that we want to prove. Right. And uh, one of the um, interesting things about this theorem is that there are um, a myriad of proofs mm -hmm. that you can cite. Um, the best one is uh, due to Euclid um, from um, you know 2,500 years ago. Right. And many people know that proof. I could talk about it for a bit if you'd like. But there are several others, uh, probably many others, and people say that it's very good to have lots of proofs of this one theorem because the set of prime numbers is a set that we know a lot about, but not all that much about. So primes are, um, in some sense, mysterious. And by having some alternative proofs of the fact that there are infinitely many primes, we could perhaps say that we are gaining more and more insight into the set of prime numbers. Yeah, and you've spent, if I understand correctly, you've spent a lot of your uh, working life trying to understand the set of prime numbers better. Well, um, so that's interesting. I call myself a number theorist, mm -hmm. and um, number theory began with very, very simple problems um, really enunciated by the ancient Greeks. Diophantus is a name that comes up frequently. And you could say that number theorists um, are engaged in trying to solve um, problems from antiquity, many of which remain as open problems. Right. But um, like most people in uh, professional life, number theorists have become specialists and all sorts of uh, quote-unquote technical tools have been developed to try to probe number theory. And if you ask a number theorist um, on the ground, as CNN likes to say, um, what she's working on, it'll be some problem that uh, sounds very technical, is probably hard to explain to a general listener, and uh, has only a remote connection to the original problems that motivated the study. Uh, for me personally, one of the uh, wonderful events that occurred in my professional life was the proof of Fermat's last theorem right. in the mid-1990s because the proof uses highly technical tools that were developed with the idea that they might someday shed light on classical problems 
And lo and behold, some problem that was then around 350 years old was solved using the techniques that had been developed principally uh, in the last part of the 20th century. Right, and if I remember right, so I'm not a number theorist, but, but were you the person who proved that uh, the, the, the Taniyama Way conjecture implied Fermat's theorem? That's right, so the, okay. the yeah, proof right. consists of several components. So I proved that something implies Fermat's last theorem. Right. And then Andrew Wiles, um, partially with the help of Richard Taylor, proved that something. The something right. is the statement that elliptic curves, whatever they are, have a certain property called modularity, whatever yes. that is. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. not get into that's that. Not, that's a bit well, much. Very, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, it's not fair for you to try to sneak an extra theorem into this podcast. <laughs> I, I know Kevin baited you into it, so I know, my you, bad. you'll get my off bad. here. But we need to circle back around to, yep. uh, so, you know, you mentioned Euclid's um, proof of the infinitude of primes, and that's probably the one most people are the most familiar with of these proofs. So, uh, yeah, do you want to maybe outline that a little bit? Because I actually not too long ago I was talking to the um, next door neighbor's eleven-year-old kid about uh, he was interested in prime numbers, and the mom knows that we're mathematicians, so we were talking about it and he was asking about like what the biggest prime number was and stuff. And so we kind of talked about how one might figure out whether there was a biggest prime number. Yeah. Well, so in fact, when people talk about the proof, very often they talk about it in a very kind of uh, circular way. You know, they start with a statement, suppose there were only finitely many primes and then this and this and this and this. But in fact, Euclid's proof is perfectly direct and constructive what um, Euclid's proof does is to start with, uh, you could start with no primes at all, but let's say we start with a prime two, uh, and we add one to it, and we look at, see what we get, and we get the number three, which happens to be prime, so we have another prime. And then what we do is we take two and multiply it by three, two and three are the primes that we've listed, and we add one to that product. The product is six, so we get seven, and we look at seven, and we say, uh, what is the smallest prime number dividing seven? Well, seven is already prime, so we take it. And there's a very simple argument that explains that when you do this repeatedly, you get primes that you've never seen before. So you start with two, then you get three, then you get seven. If you multiply two times three times seven, you get six times seven, which is 42. And you add one and you get 43, which again happens to be a prime. If you then multiply two times three times seven times 43 and add one, you get a big number that I don't recall offhand. But uh, <laughs> you look at the uh, prime factorization of it, you look for the smallest prime and you'll get the number 13. So you add 13 to the list. So you have two, three, seven, 43, 13, and you keep on going. And the sequence that you get has its own Wikipedia page. It's called the Euclid-Mullin, M-U-L-L-I-N sequence. Mm. And it's kind of remarkable that after you repeat this process around 50 times, you get to a number that is so large that you can't figure out how to factor it. Uh, it, you can do a primality test and discover that it is not prime, mm. but you, it's, it's a number analogous to the numbers that occur in cryptography where you know the number is not prime, but you're unable to factor it 
using current technology and uh, hardware. Mm -hmm. So the sequence uh, is an infinite sequence by construction, but it ends, uh, as far as Wikipedia is concerned, around the 51st term, I think it is, and then uh, the page says that uh, subsequent terms are not known explicitly. Interesting. I, that's kind of surprising that it explodes that quickly and it doesn't somehow, you know, give you like all of the small prime numbers you know, well, or, or something yeah. like that quickly. So it, it doesn't explode in the sense that it gets bigger and bigger. It, it you know, you have 43 and then it drops back to 13. Mm -hmm. and, and if you look at the elements of the sequence on the page, which uh, I haven't done lately, you'll see that the numbers go up and then down and mm -hmm. there's a conjecture which uh, was maybe made without too much evidence that as you go through the sequence, you'll get all prime numbers. Mm. Okay. I was about to ask that if, if we knew whether you would eventually get all of them or if you would end up with some subsequence of them. Well, uh, the expectation, which, as I say, is not based on really hard evidence, is that you should be able to get everything. Sure. But is it, is it clear that the sequence is actually infinite? I mean, how do we know we don't just get a bunch of repeats after a while? Well, because the principle of the proof is that if you have a prime that's appeared on the list, mm -hmm. it will not divide the product plus one. Because uh, it divides yep. the product, but it doesn't divide one, so okay. it can't divide the new number. Okay. So when you, when you take this large number and you factor it, whatever you get yep. will be a quote-unquote new prime. Okay, so this is sort of like a, a more direct version of what the, the proof that I immediately thought of, the typical contradiction sort of proof, where if you right. only had a finite number of primes, you take their product, add one, and then ask what prime, you know, what divides it. Well, none of those primes divide it, therefore, contradiction. Right. Right. So, in, okay. in fact, it's a direct right. proof, and it's completely algorithmic, recursive. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. just uh, generate an infinite set of primes. Okay. Now I buy it. Yeah, well, I'm I glad did we did the it. direct way, because uh, yeah, setting up as a proof by contradiction when it doesn't really need the contradiction, you know, it's mm -hmm. a little like that's a good way to like uh, like I when I've you know taught things like this in the past and you know said like this is a good way to to get the proof, but it, you know you can kind of polish it up and make it a little prettier by taking out the contradiction step since it's not really required. Mm -hmm. Right. And for your 11-year-old friend, you know, contradiction isn't what you want to do, right? You, you, exactly. You, you want a direct proof. Yeah. You want, you want that friend to start computing. That's right. That's right. Are there other direct <laughs> yeah. proofs? There must be. Uh, there, and, well, there, another direct proof is to consider the numbers that are known as Fermat numbers. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll tell you what Fermat numbers are. You take the powers of 2. Mm -hmm. So the powers of 2 are 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, and so on. And you consider those as exponents. So you take 2 to those powers of 2. Mm -hmm. So you take 2 to the 1, 2 to the 2, 2 to the 4, and so on. And then to these numbers, you add the number 1. So if you start with 2 to the 0, which is 1, 2 to the 1 is two and you add one and you get three. And then the next power of two is uh, two. Two squared is four, you add one and you get five. Mm -hmm. The next power of two is uh, four. Two to the fourth is 16, you add one and you get 17. Mm -hmm. And the next one, 
power of two is eight, um, two to the eight is 256. You add one and you get 257. Right. So you have the sequence, which is three, five, 17, 257. And uh, the first elements of the sequence are prime numbers. 257 is a prime number. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, rather f a famous uh, gaffe of Fermat that he uh, uh, apparently claimed that all of the numbers in the sequence were prime numbers, that mm -hmm. you can just generate primes that way. But uh, in fact, if you take the next one, it will not be prime. Mm -hmm. And I think all subsequent numbers that have been computed have been uh, verified to be non-prime. Mm -hmm. So you get these Fermat numbers, whole sequence of them, infinite sequence of them. And it turns out that a very simple argument shows you that any two different numbers in the sequence have no common factor at all. Mm. Um, and so, you know, for example, if you take 257 and say the 19th Fermat number, mm -hmm. that uh, pair of numbers will have no common factor. So in, since 257 happens to be prime, you could say that 257 doesn't divide the 19th Fermat number. But the 19th Fermat number is a big number. It's divisible by some prime. Mm -hmm. And you can take the sequence of numbers and for each element of the sequence, take the smallest prime divisor. Mm. And then you get a sequence of primes. And that's an infinite sequence of primes. And the primes are all different because the numbers have no common factor. That's nice. I like that proof. Nice. Wow. Yeah. It, it kind of like uh, killing a mosquito with a sledgehammer or something. It's, you know, making these, <laughs> it's big sequence of these, you know, somewhat complicated numbers. But, but there's something very fun about that. I mean, probably not fun to try to kill mosquitoes with a sledgehammer. Don't try that at home. Uh, you might need it in Florida. We have pretty big ones. <laughs> yeah. I, I can tell you yet a third proof of the theorem, if you, if sure. you think we have time. Yeah. Okay. So this proof I learned about it's an exercise in a textbook that's one of my all-time favorite books to read. It's called A Classical Introduction to Number Theory by Kenneth Ireland and Michael Rosen. When I was an undergraduate mm -hmm. at Brown, Ireland and Rosen were two of my professors. And uh, Ken Ireland passed away, unfortunately, about 25 years ago. Mm. But um, Mike Rosen is uh, still at Brown University and he's still teaching. And they have, as an exercise in their book, a proof due to a mathematician at Kansas State, I think it was, named Eckford Cohen. And he published a paper in the American Mathematical Monthly in 1969. And the proof is very simple. I'll tell you the, um, the gist of it. It's a proof by contradiction. So what you do is you take, um, for the different numbers n, you take what mathematicians call the um, geometric mean of the first n numbers. So what that means is that you take the numbers, say one, two, three, you multiply them together. And in the case of three, you take the cube root of that number. Mm -hmm. So we could even start with two. You can take one and two, multiply them together and get two. And you take the square root of that number, getting you know 1.42. Mm -hmm. And these numbers that you get are smaller than the averages of the numbers. So for example, uh, the square root of two is less than one and a half, than one and a half, mm -hmm. 1.5. Mm -hmm. And the cube root of six, the cube root of one times two times three is less than two, 
which mm -hmm. is the average of one, two, three. But nonetheless, these numbers get pretty big, and, and you can show using high school mathematics that these numbers approach infinity. They get bigger and bigger. And you can show, um, using a, an argument by contradiction, that if there were only finitely many primes, these numbers would not get bigger and bigger. They would stop and be um, all less than some number, depending on the primes that you could list out. Huh, that's really cool. I like that. So, so that, that's kind of an amazing proof. And you see that it has absolutely nothing to do with either of the two proofs that I told you about before. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what's so nice about number theory. You know, there's, uh, it's just such a rich field. You can, you can ask these seemingly simple questions and, and then maybe prove them 10 different ways or not prove them at all. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. So when number theory began, I think it was a real uh, collection of miscellany. Mm -hmm. You know, people would study equations one by one, and they would observe facts and record them for later use. And there didn't seem to be a lot of order to the garden. And the mathematicians who tried to introduce the uh, conceptual techniques in the last part of the 20th century, Carl Ludwig Siegel and Andre Vey and Jean-Pierre Serre and so on, these people um, tried to make everything... Um, be viewed f from a systematic perspective. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, if you look down at the fine grain, you'll see that uh, there are lots of special cases and lots of interesting phenomena. And there are lots of facts that you couldn't predict just by um, flying at 30,000 feet and mm -hmm. trying to make everything be orderly. So I think now it's pairing time. So on the show, we like to ask our mathematicians to uh, pair their theorem with something food, beverage, music, art, whatever, uh, whatever your fancy is. So what have you chosen to pair with the infinitude of primes? Well, uh, this is interesting. <laughs> Just as I've told you three proofs of this theorem, I'd, I'd like to discuss uh, a number of possible pairings. Would that be okay? Sure. Sure. Infi okay. Not, in, not infinitely many, though. Not yeah. infinitely many. <laughs> we have one so, for each prime. <laughs> so one thing is that um, prime numbers are... are very often associated with music in different ways. And in fact, there's a book by Marcus Dussotois called The Music of Primes. Mm. So maybe I could say that the subject could be paired with his book. Mm. Um, another thing I thought of was the question of uh, algorithmic recursive music. You see, we had a recursive description of a sequence coming from Euclid's method. Mm -hmm. And yesterday I did a Google search on recursive music and I got lots of hits. Hmm. Um, another thing that occurred to me, the word prime, because I like wine a lot and because I've spent a lot of time in France, it reminds me of the phrase vin primeur. So mm -hmm. you probably know that in November there's a day when the Beaujolais Nouveau is released all around the world and people drink the wine of the year, a very fresh young wine with lots of flavor, um, low alcohol and no tannin. And in France, the general category of new wines is, is called vin primeur. This is, sounds like prime wines. And in fact, if you walk around in Paris in, in November or December, 
and you try to buy Van Primeur, you'll see that there are many others, uh, many in addition to the Beaujolais Nouveau. So we could pair this theorem with maybe a Caudron Primeur or something like that. Hmm. Um, but finally, you know, I, I wanted to settle on one thing. And a few days ago, maybe a week ago, uh, someone told me that in 2017, actually just about a year ago, um, a woman named Maggie Roach passed away, and uh, she was one of three sisters who performed music in the 70s and 80s, and I'm sure beyond. The music group was called the Roaches, and the Roaches were a fantastic hit, R-O-C-H-E, and they are uh, viewed as uh, the predecessors of, for example, the Indigo Girls and a number of other groups that now perform, they would stand up three women with guitars and they had wonderful harmonies and very simple songs and they would weave their voices in and out. And I, I knew about their music when it first came out and found myself by accident in a record store in Berkeley the first year that I was teaching, which was 1978, 79, long ago. And the three roaches were there signing record albums. These were vinyl albums at the time, and they had big record jackets with mm -hmm. room for signatures. And I went up to Maggie and started talking to her, and I think I spoke to her for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but it was just a kind of electrifying experience. I really felt that, you know, somehow I had bonded with someone um, whom I never expected to see again and never did see again, and I bought one or two of their albums and got signatures. Um, I no longer have the albums. I think I left them in France. But um, she made a big impression on me. So if I wanted to pair one piece of music with this discussion, it would be a piece by the Roaches. Uh, there are lots of them on YouTube. One called the Hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N-D song, is especially beautiful. And I will uh, officially declare that I'm pairing the infinitude of primes with the Hammond song by the Roaches. Okay, I'll have to listen to that. I'm uh, not familiar with them, so uh, it sounds like a, a good piece, a good thing to listen to once uh, we're once we hang up here. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll link it in the show notes too. We'll, yeah. we'll make sure that everyone can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun, and it is always a cool experience to actually feel like you're connecting with someone like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I went to a King Singers con uh, concert one time a few years ago, and you know, got a CD signed and just how warm and, and friendly people can be sometimes, even though that, you know, they're very busy and, and very fancy and everything. Mm -hmm. So, Well, yeah. I, I've been around for a long time and people don't appreciate the fact that in, until the um, last decade or two, people who performed 
publicly were quite accessible. You could just go up to people before concerts or after concerts and chat with them. Mm -hmm. And they really um, enjoyed chatting with the public. Now there's uh, so much emphasis on security that it's very hard to actually um, be face to face with someone whose work you admire. All right. Well, this has been great fun. We, uh, I learned lots of new proofs today. That's good. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. Fun <laughs> for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for being on the show. It's my great pleasure and I love talking to you and uh, love talking about the mathematics and Happy New Year to everyone. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lane. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chao Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. 